Well, I invite you to open the Bible and get those pages flipping over to the book of Philippians. And this is a letter where the theme is joy and the man is writing from prison. And if you were here last week in chapter one of Philippians, we learned that they had sent him a gift of partnership, a financial gift to support him as he's going through a hard time in prison. And we saw how much he loved these people, how he yearned for them. And he prayed that their love would abound more and more. This is page 980. If you got one of our Bibles, we are picking it up in verse 12 of Philippians chapter one. Our text for this morning is verses 12 to 18. And Paul's going to give us his perspective from his imprisonment. And out of respect for God's word, I would love for all of us to stand up and I'll read the scripture for us. If everybody could follow along and give this your full and undivided attention, let us really learn from the word of the Lord together here today. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. That ends the reading of God's word. Please go ahead and have a seat. And so we need to get now into the mindset of a man who is in prison and he's going to be in and out of prison and eventually he's going to be executed because of his ministry of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And yet even while he is in prison, he writes, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. That's how this guy is. So we got to make sure we understand. Look at verse 12. Look at what he's saying here. Now, he is in a, a terrible way. Okay, If you've read through the book of Acts, you know the story. He goes to Jerusalem. People are telling him, don't go. They're not going to treat you well there. He goes anyways, and they uh, accuse him falsely of crimes. He gets arrested. He gets put on trial. They try to kill him, the Jews there. Uh, he's on trial with the Romans. Eventually, he appeals to Caesar, gets on a boat to go to Rome, shipwreck, snake bites him. He survives snake bite, eventually makes it to Rome, is in prison. That's where a lot of people think he is when he's writing this letter. And then he writes in the letter, I want you guys to know everything's going great. Now, that, that doesn't sound like what you or I would say if we had gone through the same circumstances that this man has gone through. This man is living his life with a different set of priorities, a different criteria than most of us, even many of us who would claim the name of Jesus here in Orange County, California or L.A. County in the year of our Lord 2019. 
I don't know how you evaluate if today is a good day in your life. I don't know what, what, what uh, little measure you would use to determine if today was a good day. I think a lot of people just, just think like, hey, am I feeling good about today? Do I have good vibes? Is it a positive day? Well, then today was a good day. Some people, they have this career or education program that they're on, and they think if they're moving forward in their career or their education, maybe they've graduated, so that's good. I think other people, they start really thinking, like, how is my family doing? If my family's all together, if my family's united, then if my family's good, then I'm good. Other people, I think it's pretty clear around here, the more money they got, if they got more money, then they're doing good. As long as there's more money in the bank, then we're doing good. As life continues, for some of us, health becomes the, the highest priority. How, where's my health? Where's my fitness? Where's, where am I at with my health? Is my health doing good? Well, then I'm doing good. See, this guy, he says that he's doing good because the gospel is advancing. He says, hey, guys, I know I'm in prison. I know you've heard probably all the stories about how I got arrested, falsely accused. They tried to kill me. Maybe you heard about the shipwreck. Maybe you know I'm in a Roman jail right now. I got all these soldiers watching me. I just want you to know that if you look at the scoreboard in heaven, I'm still winning. That's what he says right here. He says, if the gospel's making progress, advancing, if the gospel is being furthered, then that's what I'm living for. That means today was a good day. And he's going to go on to say in this passage that while he's in prison, other people are taking advantage of the situation and they're coming and preaching Jesus so that all the people who follow and respect Paul will start following and respecting them. They're literally trying out of envy and rivalry in a competitive spirit to take people away from following the Apostle Paul. And he says, hey, as long as they're preaching the gospel, well, then I rejoice. Is the name of Jesus being proclaimed? Then today was a good day. That's how this man really thinks. And so he's giving a progress report from prison because the gospel is going forward. Point number one, the example that we want to learn from here this morning, proclaiming Christ equals top priority. That's what we learn here. There's a lot of ways that he could have said, hey, what has happened to me hasn't really worked out that well. My circumstances aren't good. My feelings aren't that good. My health isn't that good. My money's not that good. So you guys had to send me money. My relationships are very strained while I'm here in prison far away from people that I love. He could have talked about all of those things, but he actually gives a good progress report because there's more gospel ringing out to more people. The name of Jesus is being lifted higher. Therefore, we're on the move. We're advancing. Proclaiming Christ equals Paul's top priority. Now, this is a passage here. These verses that we're looking at, he's not giving any commands to the Philippians here. There's no commands. There's no, hey, you should go and do this here this morning. All we have this morning is an example of a man who in this life, it would seem like his life was going terribly wrong. But in eternity, this man is making an impact. And here we are talking about him. Almost 2,000 years later, many people saying that this letter he wrote from prison is their favorite book of the Bible. So you got to decide, what is your life going to matter the way you conduct yourself here on earth? 
What kind of progress are you trying to make? You only get one life. You have a short time, Scripture says, here on planet Earth. And the question you need to ask yourself is, do you have the priority that Paul has? And will the gospel make progress because of your time here on planet Earth? That's how he lived his life. And we know the impact that he made. In fact, go over to 2 Timothy with me. Turn, turn over to the right here in your New Testament to 2 Timothy. So clearly the Lord wants our church this week to think about the testimony of Paul from prison. And here's a guy, picture him behind the bars, chained to the soldiers, giving you the two thumbs up and the smile like everything's going great. Right on schedule. Gospel ringing out. The gospel's making progress then we're doing good, all right? That's what he's saying. Now, we're going to read this week in our scripture of the day, 2 Timothy, which is another letter that Paul writes from prison. In fact, he redeemed a lot of his days in prison by writing many of the letters that we're reading here in the New Testament. Now, 2 Timothy is the last letter we know that Paul writes, and he writes it. He's not getting out of prison this time. He's getting executed this time. And he knows that his end is near when he writes 2 Timothy. So we're studying how he gives his progress report from prison. And then if you're reading the scripture of the day with us this week, and I would encourage everybody to read 2 Timothy this week, because this is a perspective that clearly God wants us to consider of a man who's in prison and thinks he's making progress. A man who's about to be killed and has no regrets and think his life actually mattered. And look what he says here in 2 Timothy 2, verse 8. This is his mentality. This is a good summary statement of his thinking, his progress report from prison. He says, remember Jesus Christ. That's what it's all about. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel. Hey, the thing that matters to me is spreading that good news of Jesus, for which I am suffering bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. That's how this guy thinks. You could chain me up. You can tie me down, but you can't stop the gospel. That's what he's saying. The word of God, it's going to do its work and nothing in this world can stop it. See, he really believed in the gospel being the power of God to save people. He really believed that the name of Jesus was the only name given among men under heaven by which we can be saved. And he thought there was this power inherent in the good news of Jesus, in this word of God going forward. And so he says this in verse 10, Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Hey, do I regret being in prison? No. Will I actually endure everything so that more people could hear the gospel and be saved? And he's saying this knowing he's going to die. This man believed that it was worth dying so that other people could hear about Jesus and be saved. Is that how you're living your life? Is that your priority? Right? If you were making a, a chart with a bunch of bar graphs of what matters the most to you, is the gospel the tallest bar in, in your graph? Are you evaluating your days, your weeks, your years? Like, did more people get to know the gospel? Did the gospel get preached? Are there more of us out there spreading the gospel? Is the name of Jesus being known by more souls? That's how this guy thought. And we could really get into his 
mindset. Now, let's go to Acts 17, and let's look at an example of what he means by preaching his gospel. So we know now he's in prison, and he's writing letters to the Philippians or to Timothy, his true son in the faith. And so we're going to keep looking at what it says in Philippians 1 here today. But let's go to see what does Paul mean by preaching the gospel? What does he mean by proclaiming Christ? Okay, because we can't assume that today in America, in the church, uh, you go ask people what the gospel is and, and they'll tell you, hey, I'm a Christian. I go to church and you're like, awesome, great. What is the gospel? Right. And you there are people who they can't. They can't tell you what the gospel is. Okay, they'll say, well, you know what it is. It's the word of God. And I say, yeah, I know what it is. I'm asking you if you know what it is. What is that word of God that we need to believe to be saved? What is the specific message that Paul was willing to go to prison for, to die for, and the whole time to say, still winning, everybody, because the gospel's ringing out. Now, look at Acts 17, because this is a classic example of a standard operating Paul procedure right here. Okay, this is how this guy rolled. Acts 17, verse one. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom. You could write there standard operating procedure, SOP, if you want to put that in there, right? because this is what he did. And on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. So here's what Paul believed. He believed you go into a town. You start preaching about Jesus. You start telling him who he is, that he's the Christ, what he did, that he died on the cross for our sins, that he rose from the dead to give us a new eternal life. You just go into any place and you start sharing that message. And that message, that gospel is the power of God. People will get saved. A church will get planted and the name of Jesus will be exalted. Now, did Paul think there was also going to be opposition and persecution and division? Oh, he knew it was going to happen. But he didn't care. I mean, he he goes into the synagogue of the Jews. So these are people who had the Old Testament and they're gathering together on the Sabbath there in the synagogue to read the Old Testament scriptures. And he comes in and he says, hey, can I read with you guys? Maybe he's using his Pharisee credentials and the fact that he's been trained in the synagogue. He knows all about the Old Testament law and he starts to use the Old Testament that they're already studying. And he says, hey, this Messiah, this Christ that you guys are talking about. Hey, do you see over here how it prophesies his suffering? Do you see over here how it prophesies his resurrection? Using the Old Testament to explain to these Jews the gospel of the death and resurrection of Jesus. And then he's emphatically saying, we have a quote here in verse 3. Jesus, I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And here's what happens. Verse four, some of them were persuaded and they joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous and taking some wicked men of the rabble. They formed a mob. You read through all these stories of Paul going into town. This is his standard operating procedure. Let's go in the synagogue and let's just drive that place crazy is basically what he's going to do. 
Let's go in there and raise a big old gospel ruckus. That's what he's doing. He's going to go in there, and here's what he fully knows is going to happen every time he does this. Some of these people are going to believe and be saved, and you can see there's a whole group there rallying around the cause of Jesus. Others are going to be divided. They're going to hate it, and they're getting the mob together. And now there's going to be a real big brouhaha here in Thessalonica. And you know what Paul's saying? Picture him in the middle of the brouhaha looking at you, two thumbs up, smiling, saying the gospel's ringing out, everybody. This is how he thought. So don't expect him to change his story when he's been going into city after city, expecting salvation and opposition. Now the fact that the opposition's catching up with him and he's in prison, he's still singing the same song. He's singing it at midnight. He's praying to the Lord. Yeah, hey, is Jesus being known by more people than today was a good day here on planet Earth? Now, when there wasn't a synagogue and Jews that he could go in and start working with them, well, look what he does in verse 22. Here's Athens. This is a whole nother situation where there's a bunch of idolatry going on. Okay, They don't know the story of the scriptures of the Old Testament. So look at how he starts his approach here. Acts 17, verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God, what therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you, I declare openly to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, he does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, when he talks about this man appointed by God, that's risen from the dead. Who's he talking about? Who's he proclaiming? Jesus Christ. Now, notice he gave them a lot more of the backstory there. He started with the creative work of God. And how we should all be seeking God. And he said we should all be repenting. God has commanded everybody to turn from their life of sin for themselves to God. And then he proclaims Jesus. Verse 32. Now when they heard the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. I mean, that's, that's how it worked everywhere he went. Figuring out a way to get into the center of town to preach the gospel to the people. Some want to hear more and believe. Others mock and reject. And here's Paul, two thumbs up, smiling. Today was a good day. The gospel is making progress. 
Is the gospel making progress because of your life? Is that a priority for you? Are you using that as some way to evaluate your time here on earth? Like this is the example of Paul. And, and I, and I got to tell you that sharing the gospel, there has somehow, and I don't know how this happened, but it has definitely happened. We are experiencing it here. There is this idea that you could be a committed Christian person who loves Jesus and you would somehow not want to tell everyone you know about Jesus Christ. I don't know where that idea came from, but we are very used to it here as Christians in America today. In the Bible, the idea that you would be a disciple of Jesus who commits your life to him. And you would not have a passion to share the message of Jesus with other people. That, that is not how the Bible is written. That is a crazy idea in Scripture. And it's normal to us. You, could not, you should not think of yourself as a Christian person just living your own life, not telling other people. That's not how Paul thought about it. That's not how he encouraged other people to be about it. That's not how I would encourage you to be about it. Can I go back to Philippians 1? And he's going to give us three reasons why he thinks it's making progress. All right? Three reasons. And I'm going to encourage you to consider these three things in your own life as well. As we learn, I mean, this man said over and over in Scripture, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Follow my example. And so look at what he says in verse 13. He says, one way that the gospel's making progress in his report here so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Now, I don't know what you think when you read that phrase there, imperial guard. There's a lot of thought about it. It's the idea of the praetorian. I mean, personally, first time I studied imperial guard, I thought, wow, he's out there preaching to the stormtroopers. That's the first thing that came to my mind. All right. So um, the praetorian guard, it's not exactly clear 100 percent what he's referring to. But the Praetorian Guard, there was this special elite group of soldiers that had the specific mission of protecting Caesar in his personal army. There was a 9,000 soldier squad that could be the Praetorian Guard that is being referred to here, which is why a lot of people speculate that Paul is in Rome when he's writing this letter. So he's in prison in Rome about to have this appeal to Caesar. So because he's going to go and be in front of Caesar, He's being guarded by the elite soldiers, the Praetorian guard of Caesar himself. And so he says here, the whole guard, this whole group of soldiers where he's a prisoner, they all now are hearing about that his imprisonment is for Christ. So this could be a group of 9,000 elite Roman soldiers that he's referring to here. Clearly, though, he's saying a bunch of Romans who live like Caesar is Lord, are now meeting me, who lives like Jesus is Lord, and they're hearing about a good news message of Jesus that otherwise they may have never, never heard. Therefore, it's good. There are more hearers. If you want to get that down for our first dash there, there are more hearers. He's excited. These guys that, are, these guys that I'm a prisoner of are a captive audience for me to share the gospel with them. 
And it's spreading. And, and this, this criminal seems different maybe to these soldiers. The message that he's sharing. Can you believe this guy, Paul? He thinks there's some other kingdom that's greater than the kingdom of Rome. He thinks there's some other Lord that's greater and has more authority and power than Caesar. And there's some kind of stir going on among these soldiers because of the gospel report that Paul is spreading among them. So because these guys who otherwise may not hear this message, are hearing this message. Therefore, in his mind, we're making progress because there are more hearers going on. Okay, Now, this was a big deal to the Apostle Paul. This was a, a logical progression that he takes us through in Romans chapter 10. Can you turn with me to the book of Romans chapter 10? Because this is something that Paul lived like everybody needed to know Jesus. Like the gospel was on a need-to-know basis for every man, woman, and child. And so his mission was not just we're going to start a church and some people are going to believe. But here's a guy who actually thought everyone needed to hear the message of Jesus. And he gives us a way to think about it. And this isn't just the way he thought about it. Clearly, here in the book of Romans, he's writing to the believers there like we should all think this way. Romans chapter 10, verse 13. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. We want people calling on the name of Jesus to be saved. Do you believe that here this morning? That if people call on the name of Jesus, they will be saved? Is that what we believe? We believe there's power in his name to save. Okay, well, verse 14. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent as it is written? How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Hey, do you really want people to get saved? Do you really want people to call on the name of Jesus? Well, how can they call on Jesus if they don't believe in Jesus? And how can they believe in Jesus if they don't hear about Jesus? And how can they hear about Jesus unless somebody tells them about Jesus? And so he says, where are the beautiful feet? Where are the people who are going to go and bring the good news? He wanted there to be more hearers. He rejoiced that the Roman soldiers now knew the gospel of Jesus. They knew why he was in prison because of the name of Jesus. But this wasn't just him thinking this is what he was supposed to do. He was trying clearly here through this logical argument to encourage all of us that there are people out there. In fact, there are so many people out there right around us. I mean, millions of people that live here in Southern California that right now could not tell you the gospel. And how are they going to hear it if we don't all go and tell them? Even if everybody in this room went and told people, there would still not be enough of us to tell everybody who needs to hear it right around here where we live. And they have to hear it. This is what this man believed. 
He didn't think, well, hey, we're doing all right because there's more people coming to church today than before. Or we got more people getting baptized. This is how we talk about it at church sometimes. Like, hey, the church is getting a little bigger. Or, hey, more people are believing. Therefore, I guess things are going good. No, he actually didn't evaluate it based on like small number of people at church, a little bit more coming. He evaluated it based on all the people that possibly need to hear. How many of those people are hearing it? That's how he thought about it. So he was excited. One of the reasons he rejoiced in prison is because more people heard the gospel. And to him, that was winning. Even if they rejected it, even if they didn't respond right away, even if they acted like they didn't want to hear it, they needed to hear it, and they did hear it, and that was a reason to rejoice. Do you believe that? Do you believe that even if you go and you tell somebody the gospel and they reject you and they don't like it, that was still the right thing for you to do? That was still even a good thing for them to hear was that Jesus loved them to die for their sin, that he rose to give them a new life and that Jesus really is Lord and they should repent of their sin and they should believe in Jesus with all of their heart. That that was good for them to hear that. That was good that the gospel went out. Whether they chose to believe in it or not, at least they heard about it. Believing is up to them. Hearing is up to us. Is that how you're living your life? Like no one's going to hell. Nobody you know is going to die without hearing the gospel from you. Is that how you're living? And we, we try to encourage every single person who's a Christian at this church. We want to encourage you to get out there with us and, and spread the gospel. Okay, And if you want to spread it to people you already know, family members, co-workers, neighbors, go for it. But we, we'll go talk to people we don't even know. We'll go approach people on the street. We'll knock on people's doors. And there are people sitting in this room right now that have got saved because a stranger approached them in Jesus' name and told them the gospel message. And that's been happening now. And, 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 it, and it's spreading. And we have this. Who's seen this little track before that we've got here at our church? Anybody seen the three most important words before? Anybody seen that? And this isn't really something we came up with. We printed it up and kind of uh, put it on paper. But it's something that Jesus says. When Jesus came and started preaching, he said this in Mark 1.15. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And so we want to make sure that everybody knows what, what does that mean? What did Jesus just tell everybody to do? To repent and believe in the gospel. And so all we're doing is defining what is the gospel. Well, we already saw Paul proclaim it. The gospel has three essential elements. That Jesus is the Christ the anointed one of God, that he died, that he suffered, that he paid for our sins on the cross when he shed his righteous blood and then that he rose from the dead. And he has power over death. He has power over Satan and sin. And he can offer anyone who believes in him an eternal life where they will know God forever and ever. Complete forgiveness of sin and a new life. This is what it is. And if you ask the average person in Orange County who tells you they're a Christian, they couldn't tell you that. We think they should know it. We think they should be able to say it at any moment of the day. And then you go and you say, hey, can I ask you, what does it mean to repent? It looks people look at me when I say, well, when did you repent of your sins? You're a Christian. Praise the Lord, brother. When did you repent? They look at me like I'm speaking a foreign language to them. 
Like, do you know how many people have come here to this church? And I'm talking about people who have been going to church for most of their life. And then they come here to our church and they're like, this is the first time I really heard and understood repentance. Do you realize how sad that is? Because when John the Baptist opens his mouth to preach, what's the first word coming out of his mouth? Repent. When Jesus opens his mouth to start preaching, what is he saying? When the apostles start spreading the good news of Jesus everywhere, what did we already read? Paul said that God commands all people everywhere to. When Martin Luther started pounding those 95 theses on the Wittenberg door and man, did he raise a ruckus back in his day, right? What was the first three of the 95? They were all telling people to. And now you can go to church all your life and never hear anybody talk about it. Well, no wonder we got a big problem in the world today. See, this message, this is essential that people hear it and they need to hear it. Not the way we're saying it. They need to hear it the way Jesus said it. They need to hear it the way Paul said it. They need to hear it as it actually is, that you are not a good person, that there is nothing you can do to get right with God. And you have to trust in Jesus Christ and what he did. He is the one way out of judgment for your soul. Every single person needs to hear this message. Are you a part of the street team of Jesus spreading this message so there are more hearers now than there were before you were here? That's how Paul evaluated his life. Hey, guys, serving. Hey, I want you to know, brothers, that this has advanced the gospel because we've got more hearers. Who's hearing the gospel out of your mouth? Because you have a passion to share it with them. Now, go back to Philippians chapter one. Look at what he says in the in the next verse. Verse 14, not only was he excited about more hearers, But look what he says here. And this is really what I'm asking everybody here to be. Everybody who believes in Jesus. He says in most of the brothers, this is Philippians 1, 14. Most of the brothers having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Second dash here on your handout. He says, not only are the guards hearing it, so we got more hearers, but we've also got more laborers. Let's get that down for our second dash. We got more people getting out there and speaking it now. He says, hey, some of the brothers that my imprisonment, the fact that I'm here and I'm in prison and I'm not backing down and I'm still preaching the gospel of Jesus, I'm still proclaiming his name. Well, it's actually brought confidence. Other people are getting inspired. Other people are seeing the example and they're daring. That's really a way you could translate this here where it says much more bold to speak the word without fear. They are daring now to speak the word. They're getting over their fear. They're, another way you could think of it is they're finally stopping to be afraid and they're starting to dare to speak up in Jesus name. And he rejoices in this. Says, hey, more people are hearing the gospel and then more people are out there speaking the gospel. Some who used to be afraid to speak in the name of Jesus are now daring to speak. And they're inspired because I'm here in prison. It's having this positive effect on believers to speak up without fear. So here was another reason that he rejoiced is because we're making progress. More people are out there sharing the gospel. Okay, more people are out there sharing the gospel. Now, this was something that not only did Paul think it was important for people to go out and share the gospel. 
This is something that we, we can tell was near to the heart of our Lord Jesus Christ. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 9. Okay, Matthew chapter 9. I, we, let's hear from Jesus. We're, we're really focusing on the example of Paul in Philippians, but I want you to hear from Jesus on this same idea in Matthew chapter 9, verses 36 to 38. Because we know when Jesus was here, doing his ministry. And some of us are going to Israel. Uh, we're leaving a, a week from tomorrow. We're going to Israel. There's a group from the church. And, and so in a couple of weeks, you're actually, the sermon will be a video from Israel is what we're going to do. All right. We're going to go to the place where Jesus taught the sermon on the Mount. Okay. And, you're, and, and we'll show you a picture of it, and you'll be able to see that he's up here, and there's thousands of people spread out over here, and he's feeding thousands with his miracles, and he's teaching in this crowd of people, in this kind of natural amphitheater there, right by the Sea of Galilee. They're hanging on every word that drips from the lips of Jesus Christ because they've never heard anyone teach like this. All the rabbis, the Pharisees, all those Sunday school or Saturday school lessons in the synagogue. We never heard anything like this guy. And they're all listening to Jesus. So we have that picture of the crowd gathering around to see Jesus. But here's what Jesus saw when he looked out and saw the crowd. Matthew 9, verse 36. When he saw the crowd, He had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are what? Oh, man. Therefore, pray earnestly, pray with a passion, pray like you mean it to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Okay, so let's try to now look at the world through the eyes here of Jesus Christ. Matthew gives us, inspired by the Holy Spirit, a glimpse from the perspective of Jesus. And all the crowd has gathered around. They're all listening to him. He's fed thousands of them. And when he sees them, look at how he thinks. He had compassion for them. Compassion. It's basically a word that means you feel it in your bowels. You feel it in your intestines. Like he feels their pain in the deepest part of who he is. He feels for this crowd. Why? Because they're harassed and helpless. And and the translation there doesn't give really the full sense. It's like somebody who's been beaten up on the side of the road, like the parable of the Good Samaritan, like someone who is beaten and and helpless, like they can't get themselves up. Someone else is going to have to come and rescue them and pick them up because they're not getting back up after the way they've been knocked down. That's what it means here by harassed and helpless. Like they all need assistance. They all need somebody to come and help them. They're like sheep without a shepherd. We know that in the Bible, sheep often go astray. They go down the path of destruction. They go their own way and the wolves come in. And sheep need a shepherd. And these people, these lost souls, they have no one to lift them up. They have no one to guide them. When he sees lost, sinful humanity, he doesn't get angry at the sinners. He gets angry at how few the laborers are. You hear what Jesus is saying to us when he tells his disciples this? He's saying the problem is not America. The problem is the church in America isn't doing its job. That's what he's saying. Don't blame the sinners. Blame the laborers. If only there were more people who would get out there among the souls of men and tell them 
the good news that can save their soul. The problem is not that we've got too many sinners. The problem is we have too few laborers. Too few people living their lives like gospel progress is their top priority. Are you a laborer for the gospel? Are you seriously trying to lead people to salvation in Jesus Christ? That's what, that's what Jesus says. Okay? And, and, and I, know, I know I've heard it so many times from so many people. Because today, to be a laborer in the church in Orange County is the exception rather than the norm. And so I hear right away why people don't want to go out and tell people the good news of Jesus in our culture, in our climate. And the number one reason you'll hear at church is because people will say, I don't know what to say if I go out there and talk to people. Now, I don't think that is the number one reason. That's the number one reason people say at church. I think the actually the number one reason is what Paul referred to in verse 14 is that people are afraid of what other people will think, say or do to them if they become a Jesus freak and go and tell everybody the gospel. They know there's going to be that raising of a ruckus and there's going to be some opposition and some persecution. And we'd rather not experience that. So we keep the gospel silent ourselves. Do you realize what Paul's saying? Paul's saying, hey guys, because I'm in prison, some of those who've been on the bench, who've been sitting on the sidelines, who's been watching the war of souls take place and just spectating, some of them are actually getting in the game and they're getting over their fear and they're starting to do something about it. That's what excites him. That people are finally getting off the bench and saying, coach, put me in. We need to win more souls. That's what gets him excited. Now, right after Jesus said we need to pray for more laborers in Matthew 10, right where you are, he sends his 12 disciples out. He sends them out two by two. Okay. Now, I often wonder what this must have been like for these disciples who were uneducated, common men. They were fishermen, some of them. We know Matthew himself was a tax collector. Jesus just told him, follow me in chapter 9, verse 9. And in chapter 10, he's sending him out to go tell everybody about Jesus. So if you follow Jesus as one of his original 12 disciples, there was no possible way you could be a follower of Jesus without being sent by Jesus to go talk to people about Jesus. He sent out his 12 disciples. And apparently he sent them out, at least in Matthew's account, it was like he told me to follow him in one chapter and the next chapter he threw me to the wolves. That's basically what Matthew's saying. Okay. And he says explicitly here in verse 7, let's just start, well, let's start in verse 16. It's also good. How could we miss any of it? Look at this pep talk. All right, guys, gather around. Everybody get your fist in the middle. Are you guys ready? We're going to go win some souls. Here's some encouraging words from our Lord Jesus Christ. Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. How's that? Does that pump everybody up right there? Okay, guys, we're the sheep, they're the wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Are you confused by the animal analogies? And then he just says, let's talk about human beings. Beware of men. Can you imagine that? You go up to somebody's house and instead of the beware of dog sign, it says beware of people. They live here, right? Beware of men. For they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. Is this an encouraging word? What kind of a word is this? You will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake. 
to bear witness before them and the Gentiles when they deliver you over. Can you underline this? Can you circle this? Can you write this down? Do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say. Man, Jesus is smart. You know what I mean? It's like 2000 years later. I know your top excuses in Orange County. It is not a legitimate thing. Jesus is saying to be worried about what to say. For what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Can I get an amen from anybody on that? Listen, if you believe in Jesus Christ, if you know the gospel and you believe that he died for your sins and that he rose again, if you have trusted in the name of Jesus to save you right there, you know everything you need to share to somebody else. Okay. If, if you can't share it with somebody else, the question you should be really asking is, do I even know it to believe it myself? Because if you have believed it yourself and it saved you, then you know what it is that needs to be passed on. And people don't need to hear every answer to every question that they could possibly have in the Bible. A lot of those questions are smokescreen. The real issue is they're in sin and they need a savior. And you can share your testimony of how you were right there with them and God saved you. You already know what you need to say. And I would rather go out with a person who became a Christian yesterday and is just trusting Jesus than a person who's been their Christian their entire life and thinks they know what to say. Because it ain't you saying anything that's saving anybody. It's the spirit of God speaking through you. In fact, some of us probably have confidence in what we're going to say, which ruins our witness because we're not trusting in the power of the Holy Spirit to speak through us. Not knowing what to say is not a good excuse, says the Lord Jesus Christ, who will hold you accountable for your priorities in this life. And that's not the only excuse he goes after. Um, and after telling them how much they're going to be persecuted and how their own brothers are going to come against them, he then gives these encouraging words in verse 26. He says, so have no fear of them. You cannot fear people. For nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light. What you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. You want to fear people? How about this logic right here? Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Hey, Jesus, why don't you tell us how you really feel about that one right there? Do you see what he just did right there? He said, let's take it to the worst case scenario. What if they kill you? Is that what you're afraid of? Are you afraid of them killing you? Which so far in here where we live would not be a rational fear because I don't know a Christian who has been martyred in Southern California for claiming the name of Jesus Christ. So we don't even really have this fear, but these guys did. A lot of these guys are going to end up dying. That is where the story ends. It ends that way for Jesus. It ends that way for the 12. It ends that way for Paul. And now we want to be Christians and live happily ever after here on planet Earth. That's not how it ended for the heroes of the faith. He said, even if they kill you, you know who you should really fear? You should fear the one who destroys souls in hell. The one who judges the thoughts and intents of the heart. Jesus is saying, hey, guys, don't be afraid of them. Be afraid of me. And I have all authority and I've sent you out. And if Jesus has sent you, you're going to tell him that you don't want to go because of these scary human beings. I think we've got to rethink this fear. And Paul, he's rejoicing 
in prison because people are stopping to be afraid and they are getting out there and speaking up. People are daring to say something in the name of Jesus. We are so afraid and there is so little threat to us. And we need to get bold to speak in the name of Jesus Christ. My dad, uh, some of you know his testimony. When he, when he was sitting there one day at USC, uh, somebody came up to him and shared the gospel. And as far as he can tell, he'd never heard the gospel. He was in college, never heard the gospel, never been to church before. Somebody comes up, tells him the good news of Jesus Christ. And right there, he believes in that message and it radically changes his life. And some of you guys, I know what you're thinking right now is, yeah, a lot of people at USC really need to get saved. I know where you're going. Some of you Bruins may be here among us, right? Uh, let's just get real. That's what some of you thought, right? Um, so he gets saved. And, and this was at the time of the 1970s, the time of the Jesus movement. We've got other people here at our church, other people at Compass Bible Churches that got saved in this exciting time where God was doing something here in this part of the world, Southern California, that was talked about on magazines and news coverage all over America. Like people knew there's some kind of Jesus movement going on in Southern California in the 1970s. And he talked about these times of evangelism where they would go out and, he, and when I walked on the campus of USC with him, he would be like, we'd talk to people right over here. And this is where I'd sit on this bench reading my Bible, waiting for somebody to sit next to me. And this is what I would do over here. And they would go out and they would tell people the gospel of Jesus and they would keep doing it until somebody believed in Jesus. That's how they knew they had, they had done the work for the day. They were waiting for somebody to believe. And then he started going to this church. He got invited to this church. And I, I studied the history of this church that he got invited to, where he, he was like this on-fire new Christian, and he loved going to this church. And he talked about how this church got a new building, and he would get there early because there would be this line of people that when they would open the doors of the church, everybody would run to try to sit in the front row of the church. And they wrote this article about this church that my dad went to when he got saved in the Jesus movement in the 70s. And it was this article in Moody Monthly, this national Christian magazine at the time. And it was the Church of 900 Ministers. That was the name of the article. And it talked about when church ended, it wasn't like it was over. It was like it was just beginning because the people of the church would go out into the community saying things like, hey, I just went to church. It was amazing to hear about Jesus. I got to tell you the good news of Jesus Christ. Just accosting people at the local McDonald's and starting religious conversation, proselytizing over unhealthy food. And it was like, this church is just going out. Everybody, everybody seems like they're a part of the team. It's not like one guy's doing the ministry. It's 900 people doing the work of the ministry. How many ministers do we have here at Compass Bible Church, Huntington Beach? How many laborers do we have for the gospel of Jesus Christ? Who's living here as a missionary for the name of Jesus? That's what Paul's rejoicing in. More people are getting over their lame fear of man and speaking up in the name of Jesus. And in that, I will rejoice, he says. Now go back to verse 15 of Philippians 1, because this is just amazing to me what he says here at the end. You got you to gotta see this. This is, this is hard for people to get. This last part here, verses 15 to 17, this is hard for... for uh, us to understand. 
Some of these who are stepping up to preach Christ, he says, some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. So now he's talking about this group of laborers who's stepping up to share the name of Jesus. And he's saying that he knows, and I don't know how he knows this, but he knows that some of the people who are out there now proclaiming Jesus are doing it in competition with him. Like some of them are doing out of rivalry with the Apostle Paul, out of envy. They don't like how so many people are following Paul and he's the famous apostle and people listen to what he says. So now some of the people out there stepping up to preach Jesus are doing it to get some of the people who are following Paul to start following them instead of Paul. That's what he says. Look at verse uh, 16. He breaks it down. There's two groups. The latter do it out of love. Like some people are sharing the gospel as it's meant to be shared. We share the gospel with people because we love them. If you're telling people who Jesus is and what he did, and you're doing it because you care, you really can't mess it up. The way you mess it up is you don't speak the truth and you don't speak it in love. If you're sharing the gospel and you're doing it in love, that's going to be a good thing that you're doing. And he says, hey, some people, they're doing it out of the right motive. They're not a noisy gong. They're not a clanging symbol. They're doing it because they love people and they want to see Jesus save. They're doing it out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. But the former, this other group, proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition. Not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. Some people are preaching Jesus to give Paul a hard time. Can you imagine that? I mean, he, this, is, this is a real statement from the Apostle Paul. I mean, he is now, he's letting these guys know what he really thinks, that uh, there are people out there preaching Jesus for their own reputation's sake. There are ministries out there, churches out there, pastors out there that are preaching Jesus to build their own reputation and, not, and really doing it against other Christians' reputation. He's speaking here about division and unity. Even the laborers are divided is what he's saying. Some of the laborers are out there trying to get at me, trying to have a competition, a rivalry. They're envious of my influence, he says. Wow. And he says, even then, only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that I, what does he say? In that I, what? So people are taking a dig at him. They're trying to take some of his followers away from him. They're trying to build up their own name as opposed to his. And he says, hey, ministry isn't spelled with me. Let's get that down for our third dash. Hey, it's not about me, guys. I didn't do all of this so everybody would think I was the cool Apostle Paul. I did all of this so that the name of Jesus Christ would be proclaimed. And these people, they must be sharing the real gospel. If they were sharing a false gospel or another gospel, we know what Paul thinks about that. Is he going to be okay with a false gospel? What does he say in Galatians 1? If someone's preaching another gospel, let them be accursed. Let them be anathema. So these people are preaching the right gospel. They're just doing it with this wrong, selfish motive against Paul and to kind of build up themselves. But as long as they're preaching Jesus Christ and people are hearing the good news, he says, even then I'm going to rejoice, even if it's not about me, even if it's not going the way that I would want, people are doing it against me. He says, hey, I'm still in for the name of Jesus being proclaimed. What an amazing, humble statement from the apostle. 
to rejoice even when his name is being defamed. As long as the name of Jesus is being proclaimed, he's going to rejoice. Let's just speak honestly about the division among Christians these days. Let's just speak honestly that many churches, it seems, are in it for themselves. And it seems like the thing that should be rallying all believers together is to preach the good news of Jesus, that the lost souls around us need to hear about his death and resurrection, that repentance and faith in the gospel needs to be proclaimed in Jesus' name to all nations. Like we should be all on board with that, but it's like everybody's doing their own thing. We need to pray for unity around proclaiming the gospel of Jesus. We need to pray that churches in this area will come together and unite over what we all have in common, that there's only one way to be saved in Jesus Christ. And he speaks to that here. We need more people hearing it, more people out there sharing it. And then he speaks to the fact that even if there's division, as long as it's going out, that would be great. But clearly what he's going to encourage the Philippians to do is have no division and come together as one, one body, one spirit, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. That's what he's going to encourage. And that's what I think God really wants to happen here at our church. I think this is such a great word for us here in the summer of joy, for us to assess our priorities and for us to ask ourselves in this place, at this time, are we going to come together as one group of people ready to proclaim the name of Jesus Christ? And we have a real practical way to do that. On the way out, you're going to get this fireworks week card. And there's going to be a meeting next Sunday at 1 o'clock right here in this room to pump up a street team. We'll give real encouraging words, kind of like Jesus did there in Matthew chapter 10. And then it's got the whole calendar right here. We're going out starting on the 29th. We're going out every day through the week of the 4th of July. And we're going to go out and we're going to proclaim uh, the name of Jesus Christ. We're going to do it in a friendly way with free ice cream and a 4th of July float and little 4th of July flags. And we're going to tell people that they really need Jesus Christ to be saved. And I want to encourage you to make sure you're one of the laborers because more people need to hear the gospel. And in that, we will rejoice. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we thank you for this example of Paul. Father, and I pray that you really would use his example to stir us up. God, and I I pray that even this week when we read 2 Timothy, that we'll see this man there in prison, dying for his proclamation of the gospel to the Gentiles, not backing down. And as they're getting ready to kill him, as he knows he reaches the end of his life, he has no regrets because the gospel is still making progress. And Father, it is sad to think about Paul sitting there in that jail and then being executed and how he says at the end of 2 Timothy that no one stood with him. Father, I pray that you would really unite us here together, that we would make a stand for the gospel in our day and that we would unite together with one spirit because of our one Lord Jesus Christ. That you would put it on the parts of everybody, every, every Christian here in this room, that we would be the laborers in the harvest field of North Orange County, South L.A. County. That we will make a difference, not just to see a difference here in the church, but a difference in the cities around here. A difference in the community around here. That Westminster and Garden Grove and Fountain Valley and 
Anaheim Hills and Mission Viejo and Downey and all the cities that people are driving to this church from, that they would be different because there's people proclaiming the name of Jesus. God, that we would work together, that we would strive side by side for the faith of the gospel. Make us a church of so many ministers making a difference in Jesus' name. We pray. Amen.